Chapter Twenty of the Story of Avis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Story of Avis by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps. Chapter Twenty. Every man has experienced how feelings which end in themselves and do not express themselves in action leave the heart debilitated. We get feeble and sickly in character when we feel keenly, and cannot do the thing we feel. Robertson In September the college papers announced that Professor Philip Ostrander had resigned the assistant geological chair in Harmouth University, on account of an increasing delicacy of the lungs, in consequence of which his physicians had forbidden all brain labour, and required a change of climate. It was understood that he would sail for Havre next week to spend the winter in the south of France. His resignation was deeply regretted by the faculty and students. The academic year opened prosperously under the hands of Professor Brown, his successor. Professor Coben was expected to resign at the close of the winter term. Professor Ostrander was so feeble that he had not been present at the senior party kindly given by Mrs. President Hogarth at the usual time. He had been as deeply missed in the drawing-room as he would be in the classroom, both of which locations he eminently graced. Professor Brown was understood to be the man who had recently detected the precise difference between the frontal sinuses and the white and grisly bears. A brilliant career was predicted for him. Footnote. A contributor adds that he is also the discoverer of the left foramen of the third cervical vertebra of the first monkey who harmonized with the environment. It is needless to say that a freshman bears the entire responsibility of this grave statement. After the first strange chill was out of the lonely air, Avis was shocked to find her husband's absence a relief. He had become extremely irritable before he went away. The reaction from his college work, and from his escapade with Barbara, had added mortification to mortification, under which he weakened petulantly. Like all untuned natures, he grew discordant under the friction of care and trouble. He became really so ill that Avis felt that not an hour should be lost in removing him from the immediate pressure of annoyances from which she could not shield him. It was she who passed lightly over the embarrassments and economies under which the projected journey must place the family. It was she who was sure they could get along till the lease of the house was out. It was she who was confident that rest would restore him, and that a future would await him. It was she who remembered the draughts that lurked for him, shaded the sun that dazzled him, cured the headaches that tore him, went away to amuse the children when they fretted him. Philip must have the cream-whip and the sherry, and the canter across country, and Europe though the nurse were dismissed, and the seamstress abandoned, and the rent paid, heaven help her, out of that locked studio to whose cold and disused walls she should creep by and by with barren brain, and broken heart, and stiffened fingers. Avis took the emergency in her own strong hand. She planned, she hoped, she commanded, she contrived. That intelligent self-surrender which is the supreme sign of strength expressed itself in her with the pictorial graciousness peculiar to her special gift. She brought the whole force of her professional training to bear upon the shade of dye which might renew a baby's cloak. She made the very shoes that Van wore in those days—poor little pathetic shoes, badly stitched, perhaps, but of exquisite colour, and a temporary defiance to the family shoemaker. If only papa could have beefsteak at breakfast, the omelette need not be in a nicked platter, and a flower or so on the table gave Van a swelling consciousness of hilarious domestic dissipation, which obviated the gloom of absent luxuries. "'I am sorry to have burdened you with such petty economies,' Philip had said one day. But he spoke with the polite reserve which had become habitual with him. He was always polite to his wife. He noticed her domestic ingenuities with approval. He said, 
We never thought you would turn out so comfortable a housekeeper, did we, Avis?" with an absent-minded smile. And then he asked her what she did with his passports, and if she had packed the Calisaya bark, and where was the lecture on chalk, which he thought he might have a chance to deliver in England. Avis answered patiently. She thought Philip walked about like a frost-bitten man. A certain hardness in his nature, of which she could not be mistaken in fancying herself the especial object, developed itself in a delicate but freezing form, like the ice scenery upon a window. It was with profound intellectual confusion that she remembered his first kiss. Was this the man who had wooed and won her with an idealizing gentleness, which made of his incarnate love a thing divine? To admit it seemed like a challenge to the doctrine of personal identity. One day, spurred by a momentary impulse to leave no overture of wifely forgiveness and yearning unoffered, of whose omission she might think afterwards with that scorching self-rebuke, in which all shallow pride shrivels to the bitterest ashes, she crept up to him and began timidly, "'Philip, this poor old carmine shawl that you used to like so much is pretty well faded out. Do you remember the night when we first came home, when I had it on?' "'Yes, I remember,' said Philip distinctly. We were very happy, Philip. Then. Yes. Sometimes I wonder, tremulously, if nothing in this world can ever make us feel so again. That, he said, regarding her with cool, distant eyes, is entirely out of the question. The man whose unapproachable tenderness had spared the life of a dumb bird because it trusted him, could say this to his wife. His voice had a fine, grating sound. It made Avis think of the salute of icebergs meeting and passing in the dark. Yet we should see that, apparently, Philip Ostrander was as unconscious of cruelty as the burnt-out crater is of the snow that is sifted down its sides. It was his temperament, he reasoned, to express himself as he felt, and he certainly did not feel to his wife as he did when they first married. He saw no occasion for dwelling upon an ardour which marriage must inevitably chill. Avis's good sense must perceive this. Why should they trouble themselves? The daily annoyances and anxieties which the bond between them compelled them to share were as much, he thought, as either of them could just bear now, without adding any finer affectional subtleties to their burden. He wished with all his heart, he said, that it had been the necessary outgrowth of his nature to love with the poetic constancy natural to his wife. Events had proved that it was not. What, then, could he do? Ostrander pitied himself. He sincerely believed that he bore the heavier end of their mutual sorrow and now he was gone. He had not, indeed, parted with his wife without emotion, but it was a perfectly silent one, like that of a man struggling with feelings ill-defined to himself. He had hung over his boy, and clung to him, choking. He was very fond of Van. His departure left Avis free for a space to wrestle as she might with the inevitable reaction of the last few months. In the calm of her first solitary hours she was chastened to perceive how her married story had deepened and broadened. Nay, it seemed created in her certain quivering human sympathies. Her great love, so hardly won, so lightly cherished, withdrew upon itself in a silence through which all the saddened lovers of the world seemed to glide with outstretched hand, and minister to her, a mighty company. Especially her heart leaned out to all denied and deserted women, to all deceived and trustful creatures. A strange kinship, too solemn for any superficial cast of the nature to blight, seemed to bind her to them all betrayed girls, abandoned wives, aged and neglected mothers, lived in her fancy with a new exacting claim. To the meanest thing that trod the earth, small in all else, but large enough to love and suffer, her strong heart stooped and said, Thou, 
Thou, too, art my sister." Avis had been bred to the reticence not uncharacteristic of the New England religion among its more cultivated, or at least among its more studious possessors. She was one of those sincere and silent Christians, with whom we must look more to the life than to the lip for the evidence of the faith that is in them. The professor's had been a home in which the religious character of his child was taken for granted, like her sense of delicacy. She was expected to be a Christian woman precisely as she was expected to be a cultivated lady. In a matter of course, abundant speech was a superfluous weakness. She had escaped the graver dangers of this training, but not its lifelong influences. It was inevitable that the tragedy of her married life should result in a temporary syncope of faith, in which it was equally inevitable that she should support in perfect solitude. But to dwell upon this phase of her experience would seem to copy the rude fault of those biographers that break faith with the personal confidence of the dead, who can no longer protest. With a terror for which I do not feel at liberty to find speech or language, Avis watched departing love shake the slow dust of his feet against her young life. With a dread which shook to the roots of belief, she perceived that her own slighted tenderness had now begun to chill. That Philip should cease to love her, this could be borne. There was a worse thing than that. All was hers while she yet loved him. She wrestled with her retreating affection as Jacob of old wrestled with the angel till break of day. She struggled with that which was greater and graver than the sweet ghost of a ruined home. She fought for her faith in all that makes life a privilege, or death a joy. No argument for the immortality of the human soul seemed to her so triumphant as the faith and constancy of one single human love. "'Mamma, has papa gone to Jerusalem?' "'No, my son. Mamma has told you a great many times where papa has gone.' "'Jesus went to Jerusalem,' said Van, with a reproving smile, quite gentle and a little sad, as if his father had been caught in the omission of some vital religious duty. But after I got through crying, I thought I'd like to have him go. I'd rather kiss you myself, Mamma. I don't like another man to do it. I'll have a wife of my own when I get big enough. He needn't think." "'There, Van, that's enough for now. Don't you see I am very busy painting? I can't kiss little boys all day. Run away now." Van disappeared, not without something of the reluctance of a jealous lover drawing his first breath of bliss in the absence of his rival. Van's love for his mother was one of those select and serious passions which occasionally make the tie between son and mother an influence of complex power. She must be a woman of a rare maternal nature who will supersede in the heart of a man the mother who is capable of inspiring in the boy a love of this controlling and sensitive kind. Scarcely had the palette knife struck the cobalt to the Naples yellow when the studio door shivered, stirred, and started with a prolonged and inspiring creak. Van admitted his little nose on probation into the crack, and heaved a heart-breaking sigh. "'Mamma,' very sweetly, "'now Philip is gone. I suppose I may call you Avis, mayn't I?' "'Shut the door, Van.' His pretty mamma had an unhappy habit of expecting to be obeyed, which was a source of serious disorder to Van's small system of philosophy. He shut the door in, nose and all, with a filial haste and emphasis, the immediate consequences of which fell heavily upon both parties in this little domestic tragedy. When the outcry is over, and the sobbing has ceased, and the tears are kissed away, and the solid little sinner lies soothed upon the cramped and forgiving arm, where is the strength and glory of the vision? Where the leaping fingers that quivered to do its bidding in the fresh life of the winter morning hour? Run away again, Van. Mother must go to work now. Mamma, faintly, I've sat down on something soft. 
I'm all blue in colors, mamma, and my sack behind. I didn't know it was your palette, mamma. I didn't mean to. Oh, I'd rather not. I'd like a share. Mamma, presently from behind the locked door, I want a piece of punky pie. No more pumpkin pie today, Van, and you mustn't talk to mamma through the door any more. Oh, well, mamma, a piece of punky pie will do. I've had the sherries. I've had twenty free or nineteen canned sherries. Me and the baby eat em. I eat the sherries, and she eated the stones, mamma. I put em down her throat. She needn't have cried, I don't think. So I want a piece of punky pie. Silence succeeds. Mamma, can't you kiss little boys all day? Not very dear little boys, mamma. By and by, Van, run to Julia now. Run and play with your little sister. But Master Van stoutly maintained that he did not wish the society of his little sister. He thought his little sister had bumped her head. He should expect mamma would want to unlock the door and find out. If he had the mucilage bottle and papa's razor and the pretty purple ink and the kiss, he would go and find out and never come upstairs any more. Mamma, by and by, do you love my little sister best of me or me best of my little sister? I should think you'd rather let me in and tell me about that. Oh, mamma, once more persuasively, I want to say my prayers. Tonight, Van, at bedtime. No, I want to say em quick this minute. If you'll let me in to say my prayers, I'll go straight down and see if Julia's got the cookies done. Love, in the guise of religion, as ever since the world was young, carried the yielding day before him. With despair in her heart and the palette fresh from its service as a cricket in her hand, Avis admits the little devotee. Plump upon his knees upon the drying oil, in the unutterable background of that sack, drops Van, and thus waylays the throne of grace. Oh, Lord, please do not let boys tell lies and say he's got a jackknife and a pistol in his pocket when he hasn't either one, which a boy did to Jack Rose and me this morning. Oh, Lord, amen. Mamma, I think it was one of the Plimpton boys. Now will you kiss me, Mamma? And so, and so, and so. What art can tell us how? O oh, golden winter morning, your coy heart is repulsed forever and when from the depths of the house sweeps like a scythe upon the artist's nerves that sound which all the woman in her shrinks to hear, the cry of a hurt baby, Avis with a sigh unlocks the studio door. There is the problem of ages in that speechless sigh. Van all paint and patience like a spaniel lies curled upon the floor, with his lips against the studio door. The stout little lover, faithful in exile, has lain and kissed the threshold till he has kissed himself asleep. The rare tears filled Avis's eyes as she lifted him, and then Julia brought the baby, and the bump, and the brown paper. And there she was sitting, pinioned with both children, patient and worn, with the bright colours of her paints around her, and the pictures with their mute faces to the wall, about the room. There was a hand-organ, too, playing a dismal little tune somewhere down the street, when an impatient knock preceded a nervous push to the unlatched door, and, with the familiarity of art and age, her old master presented himself upon the scene. Frederick Maynard stood still. He did not immediately speak. He looked from child to child, from both to her, from her to the barren easel. The dismal hand-organ below set up a discordant wail, the more pathetic for its discord, like all inharmonious things. The baby had pulled down Avis's pink neck-ribbon and her bright hair. The tears lay undried upon her cheek whose colour slowly stirred and scorched her lifted, languid face. "'You see,' she said, trying to smile, "'how it is.' "'I am not here to see anything,' answered the drawing-master shortly. 
What have you done this week? Nothing. Last week? The week before? Nothing at all. Only the sketch for the crayon that you see. And I have begun to give drawing lessons to Chatty Hogarth. Mr. Maynard, once a visitor, came to Andrea del Sarto's studio. It was after his marriage. He was dabbling away at some little thing. He looked up and said, Once I worked for eternity. Now I work for my kitchen. Confound the kitchen work! cried Maynard savagely. Kitchen work, indeed! Crayon portraits, I should think! Drawing lessons, if you dare! You! You! Why, I am sixty years old! I have never got a picture into the exhibition but once. There was a quarrel among the directors, and one fellow put my landscape in to spite another, but I have never thought the less of the landscape. And here are you, with your sphinxes, and your sphinxes! Why, New York has gone wild over you in one week's time! Every studio in the city pricking up its ears, and the easel and the blender, and a duel over the picture to start with. May heaven bless them for it! Drawing lessons, indeed!" "'Pray tell me,' said Avis, growing very pale, and putting the children down, lest her faint arms should drop them. "'Pray explain exactly what you mean. I do not understand. I have never heard from the picture since you sent it to New York. Has anybody noticed? Will anybody buy my sphinx?' No," said the drawing-master, with a short laugh. I don't think anybody will buy the picture. Just yet. Not immediately, that is. The trouble is, you see—" I expected trouble," sighed Avis patiently. I am used to that. Don't mind telling me. I don't mind. Why, the only trouble is," said Frederick Maynard, that the picture was caught up the second day out. Caught up," said Avis faintly. Engaged. Bought. Sold. Paid for. The Sphinx was sold before Goupil had held it for forty-eight hours. Mind you, don't let Goupil photograph it. You can't afford to photograph a fledgling. You have a future. The easel says it is a work of pure imagination. The blender says it shows signs of haste." "'The blender is right,' said Avis, with returning breath and colour. That child in the foreground—the Arab child looking at the Sphinx with his finger on his lips, swearing her to silence—do you remember? I put in that child in one hour. It was that day. She checked herself. Her husband himself should never know the story of that day. He would not understand. It would not have been to him as it was to her, coming down that morning, not a month after he had sailed, to find the dun for those college debts. Avis had the blind horror and shame of most delicate women in the presence of a debt. Her stinging impulse had been to discharge this without telling Philip or her father. Upon the spot she drew up an order for the sale of some bonds of her own, upon whose proceeds the family were in part dependent for the coming year. Fortunately she had not to deal with stock or real estate, which the wife cannot sell without the husband's consent. Avis did not know this. She knew nothing except that she was grieved and shamed, and vaguely in need of money. She flew up to the studio, struck the great sphinx dumb with the uplifted finger of a child, and sent it desperately from her before the cool of her frenzy fell. You are to make no more portraits, you understand," said Frederick Maynard, stumbling over Van and narrowly escaping sitting on the baby as he went out. You'll never be a portrait-painter. You must create. You cannot copy. That is what we lack in this country. We have no imagination. The Sphinx is a creation. I told Goupil so when I took it on. He bowed politely, and now he comes asking for a photograph. You! You! Life is before you now. And I am sixty-three years old. But Avis put her hand in his with a patient, unresponsive smile. She looked very gentle in her falling hair. The children clung to her. The light lay gravely on the studio floor. 
She could hear the faint pulse of the sea, whose mighty heart beat between her and her husband, throbbing upon the frozen shore. The hand-organ in the street wailed on. "'Life is behind me, too,' she said gently. "'It was before my marriage that I painted the Sphinx. Don't be too much disappointed in me, if there are never any more pictures. Oh, I shall try. But I do not hope—do not think. We all have our lives to bear. If I, too, were sixty-three, perhaps—there, hush, my little girl—perhaps—I should not—mind so much." "'It seems to me,' interrupted the drawing-master, winking resolutely, "'that it can't be quite right for those children to look just as they do. Isn't there something a little peculiar in their expression?' Van was ingeniously trying to cut his throat with the palette-knife, and it would have been impossible to accuse the baby of not trying to swallow the tube of Prussian blue. The year ran fleetly. Van was ailing a great deal that spring, and in the summer her father was ill. Thus, in the old, sad, subtle ways, Avis was exiled from the studio. She could not abandon herself to it without a feminine sense of guilt, under which women less tender may thrive callously, but at whose first touch she quivered with pain. She was stunned to find how her aspiration had emaciated during her married life. Household care had fed upon it like a disease. Sometimes she thought it an accusation to her misery, that still, straight forever through the famine of her lot, its heart beat on, like that of the nervous physique, which is first to yield, but last to die. Then she wished, with all the wild, hot protest of her nature, that the spirit of this gift with which God had created her, in a mood of awful, infinite irony, it seemed, would return to him who gave it, that the dust of her days might descend to the dust in peace. She wished she were like other women, content to stitch and sing, to sweep and smile. She bowed her face on the soft hair of her children, but she could not forget that they had been bought with a great price. She thought of the husband whose love she had mislaid, and counted the cost of her marriage in the blood of her soul. Mamma, I'm most damp and a little wet,' Van, one sharp afternoon in September, said this hilariously. He and Waite had been to swim. They'd been to swim in the hogshead. Julia wouldn't put Waite in, but he got in. He got in like thunder while she went to tell of him. Then she came back and pulled him out. But there weren't any fishes in the hogshead, and he'd rather have his feet shanged now. What was the matter, Mamma? "'Oh, Lord!' said Van, kneeling, swaddled in his mother's rose-coloured shoulder-robe at his prayers that night. "'Oh, Lord! I know you've got a great many little boys to think of, but I hope you'll remember I've got a sore throat.' And now it was the matter again, Mamma. Something was always the matter, Van thought to-day. He wished there had never been any such day been born. "'Lo!' echoed the heart of the mother. "'Let that day be darkness. Neither let the light shine upon it. As for that night, let darkness seize upon it. Lo! let that night be solitary. Let no joyful voice come therein.' With the frosty dawn, the child lay very ill. Before another night, an acute form of pneumonia had developed itself. Sensitive from birth, the boy's lungs succumbed with only a frail struggle. For fifteen days and nights his mother hung over him in her strong, dumb way. Then, perhaps, she first understood the solemn depth of the tie, which, through all distance and all difference, all trial and all time, binds any two human creatures who have bestowed life upon a third. In this awful language of bereavement which God was setting her ignorant youth to learn, her own loss seemed to her but the alphabet of agony. Her heart yearned with unspoken and unspeakable throes over the father of her child. That this must be, that the lips of his first-born should grow cold without his good-bye kiss, 
that Philip somewhere wide across the world should that day be strolling and laughing in the sun, not knowing. This seemed to her the very sense and soul of her sorrow. She saw him go chatting with a group of sight-seekers down a bright street, idling in a chapel at the mass, buying a ticket for the opera, twirling a lady's fan beneath a chandelier, praising the claret at the hotels, drumming with his finger to the music in the beer-garden, stopping at the toy-shop windows to decide what he would get for Van, writing notes, perhaps, to the little fellow—he wrote to Van a good deal—at that moment, while the boy struggled on her nerveless arm to turn and say, "Mamma, will Papa come walking in? Some day, Van, some time. Will he come in at the front door, Mamma, to kiss his dear little boy? Oh, my darling, some time, somewhere, yes. I thought I heard somebody at the front door, Mamma. It is the wind we hear, Van. Can't Papa get home on the wind? Can't Papa walk on the wings of the wind? God did. I thought Papa could, Mamma. Mamma, do you love my little sister best of me, or me best? Best, oh, best, that moment, Van, of all the empty world. End of chapter twenty.